Listener Production. The message I give to women's groups all the time is you don't need to lose weight, you don't need to get another degree, you don't need to exercise more, you don't need to get cosmetic surgery, you don't need to do any of those things. You just have to believe that you're fine just the way you are. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer at The Motley Fool, but more importantly for our context, the host of The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff, which, as you know by now, is exactly the aim of our podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Today's guest kind of covers all of those criteria. Welcome to The Good Oil, Jane Caro. Thank you for having me, Scott. Now, Jane, I'm really pleased. I have followed you on general media, social media for a long time. Uh, you and I met in the green room uh, at Channel 9 a, a few months ago. And after I had that meeting, I thought, I really got to have a chat <laughs> with Jane because your experience and interests cover a whole lot of things. And while this is largely a business podcast, more or less, I'm a pretty big proponent of you know the economy serving society, not the other way around. And the context in which businesses operate, the business world exists, I think is super, super useful and, and really, really important. So I really appreciate it, mate. I'm going to just read um, the, the description of you because it's, I'm sure almost everybody knows who you are, but I'm just going to read this out for a second. Jane Caro AM is a Walkley award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, documentary maker, feminist, and social commentator. She spent 35 years as an award-winning copywriter and seven years teaching advertising creative in the School of Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. These days, she's a full-time writer, social commentator, speaker, and broadcaster. And it doesn't stop there yet. She has published 13 books, including four novels and a memoir. She created and edited Unbreakable, feeling stories women writers had never told before, which was published just before the Harvey Weinstein revelations. Hashtag me too. Uh, mate, that is a lot <laughs> that you've managed to pack in uh, to still a very young life. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to start by asking a very, very general question. If I say to you, Jane, what's exercising your mind right now? What are you passionate about? What are you seeing that you feel needs commenting on, uh, given that social commentator comment at the end? We'll get to the other stuff as well. Yeah. What's kind of really exercising your, your mind? What's, what's getting you up in the morning? Or keeping me in bed. Um, <laughs> if it's that bad, maybe, yeah. Pulling the covers <laughs> over my head. Uh, I think I'm probably thinking about and worrying about things that a lot of other people are too at the moment. Things are looking very fragile. That's the word I'd use, very finely balanced. And there are an awful lot of dark forces, I would say, at work in the world at the moment. I mean, what's happened in um, Israel and Gaza just in the last little while is impossible to ignore and it's so distressing. The whole thing is so distressing on every single level and the reactions to it are also distressing. Um, so often it's not the event so much as how we, the world, is reacting that is worrying me more and more. Obviously what's going on in the United States, I mean, the possibility that Trump could be president again terrifies me. I think that's the end of democracy, basically, in the US. And if, if democracy is over in the US, can it survive anywhere else? Um, and obviously, ongoing, um, I worry 
always about climate change. And one of the reasons I'm so frightened about the move to the right, the populist right, right across the world, we're now waiting for results this very minute from Argentina as to whether um, they're going to go down the libertarian right route or not, is that all these populists are science deniers. They deny science. They deny science over COVID. They deny science over climate change. They deny any science, any fact, any reality that doesn't suit their narrative. This is a terrifying place for the world to be while we face an existential crisis like climate change. And sorry, if you get on a plane, you can't deny science. Like, sorry, science has got us. (laughs) You and I talking over this. I was going to say, exactly. You know, sorry, science has proved that it is fact-based and reality-based over, over and over again constantly. It doesn't mean it never gets anything wrong and never makes a mistake or that it's perfect, but it does prove that if we're going to rely on anything in this world, we should be relying on science and knowledge. And it's as if we have come we have come so far in understanding the world and how it works and even ourselves that we have turned against knowledge. We've said, oh, this knowledge is makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me think I have to reassess things. I'm going to pretend that knowledge is a lie. This exercises me all the time. So, Matt, I want to ask you your thought. That's a, that's a very strong start. I, I, want to, I want to ask, you're a social commentator. You spend a lot of time thinking about, I mean, you're, you're in the business of persuasion for, for most of your early career. And so you think a lot about what drives people. And, and I wrote down, as I was, you were talking the word fear there, because I don't know that, I mean, you may disagree entirely, I don't know that the abandonment or rejection of science is actually a logical decision by almost anybody. There may, be, there may be some people out there who are using it cynically to try and take advantage of others. But for those, I don't think anyone, as you say, would say, actually, I don't trust that pilot. I don't trust Boeing for making the plane. Uh, I'm going to do, do my own research on whether that plane should be able to fly. And yet there is a very clear sense of, I'm just going to say, I, I think I think it's fear. You may disagree. I think it's fear. I think it's a case of stop the world I want to get off. Mm. This person is offering me a simpler, easier way where I don't have to make hard decisions or deal with hard problems. How, how right is that? What else would you put down the rise of, as you say, the populist right? Um, even even the left-right thing is weird. You and I grew up in a, in a world where Left and right's kind of twisted 90 degrees, which sounds obviously not possible, but the 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 old Labor Party, the old Liberal Party were different parties to what I think we see now. The early 80s, late 90s, uh, late 70s, sorry, maybe it's early 70s. Liberal and Labor Parties were very different. They had a very different, you know, combination of of fiscal and social policy. Mm. What what's changed, mate? What's what's driven the the most recent populism and everything that's gone with it as you just summarized? Well, I think a lot of what you said is correct, that people want simple answers to complex problems. Um, and populists, unfortunately, see that and decide to give it to them, even though they themselves may know they're peddling crap. And even if they don't know they're peddling crap, you quickly find out they're peddling crap because <laughs> reality will bite. And and, and um, so that's a huge problem. Um, and I, I, but I think there's another thing, and it may be caused by the fear that people have that the world is spinning out of control and it's all getting too fast for them. And that is a sort of a politics of grievance, a kind of sullen, uh, truculent resentment politics that particularly typifies a Trump supporter and which I find, and apologies to you, Scott, when I say this, but I find is most visible. It's not entirely with older white men, 
but older white men are very obvious in their um, support of this kind of grievance, this sense of grievance. And what I put that down to is they were promised something. Men who are my age now were promised when they were young that they would be the bosses, that they would run at the very least their family, that they were the man, (laughs) they were in charge, you know, they were just that head of the household kind of a guy. And that's all gone. That's all gone. And a lot of them have lost their wives because they insisted on that and their wives decided, why do I have to do it? <laughs> you know, and um, yeah. don't even, they can't even lord it over uh, gay people anymore. They can't lord it over people of colour anymore. That has been taken away from them. And I think there is a huge level of resentment. There was some really interesting research done into the people who went to the January 6th Capitol, you know, horror. And, you know, they weren't poor. These were quite prosperous people. Um, a lot of them flew to Washington, D.C. to participate in that. They are not the marginalised. They're not on the breadline. They're not the people who marched on Bastille Day at the start of the French Revolution. That's not who they are. Um, and, in fact, the thing that united them, in this research said, was a sense of grievance, a sense that they were entitled to something they hadn't got, and many of them a bad divorce, lost a business, didn't, you know, lost a job, uh, did business deals gone wrong, you know, a sense in which they feel hard done by. And uh, there is this feeling across the world of a kind of victimhood that everybody's a victim and there's a victim competition. Who's the biggest victim here? Uh, You almost see it in the way people are reacting to the Gaza-Israel thing, that there's a bit of a competition as to other are the Palestinians more sinned against or are the um, hostages and the Israelis more sinned against? When actually every loss of life, every tragedy, every human person who is um, tortured or kidnapped or held against their will or bombed to smithereens or loses it, it's one of them are um, entitled to our empathy and sympathy and our compassion, regardless of what religion they have or who started it or who's right or who's wrong, you know, all that. But there's always this competition all the time. And um, that's what I'm seeing everywhere. This, no, it's all about me and my, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, I find that very disturbing. And I think to a large extent it's that sense of grievance and entitlement that is being manipulated by very bad actors. And it's proving to be very fertile ground for that kind of um, populist uh, government and and the people who suffer under those populist governments, as we've seen in the US with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, uh, as we have seen with um, people like Viktor Orban and, and, and Poland and that sort of thing, are often women, often LGBTQ people. Immigrants particularly become the easy target I mean, we've got this ridiculous situation now where a whole lot of people who were arrested for crimes they committed and uh, did the crime and then, you know that saying, did the time, Um, oh, we've got to find a way to hold them indefinitely because they're immigrants. Well, all sorts of rapists and murderers who are born in Australia are released from jail every day and we don't go, oh, quick, we better lock them up again. And this is, again, this scapegoating of the other. And I guess this is where people go when they don't want to think about the complexity of life and they also don't want to think 
maybe I'm not losing anything but the unfair advantage I was granted a long time ago. Uh, and, and that is difficult for people to get. I do understand that. And if you're a, 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 a an older white bloke who's living on the pension, you may not feel all that advantaged. And I get that and I get how that must feel. But nevertheless, the world is changing and I don't think populists or not, women, LGBTQI, people of colour are going to go back into their box and be nice and accommodating ever again. And I think that's for the best, but it does make it a very rocky, torturous path to get from point A to point B when there is that that issue. You mentioned grievance, mate. I, I think that's a great word. I remember noticing when during Tony Abbott's time as opposition leader before he took power, that amplification of, and every politician has done it since because probably it works either cynically or otherwise, started the, I know you're doing it tough, everything's really hard, vote for me, I'll make it better for you. And I think that's that's what I'm taking from what you mean by grievance, at least in one in one specific circumstance, which is every politician, including Jim Chalmers most recently, yes, I know you're doing it tough with the cost of living and so done. It's that, that sense that we don't, A, feel like we can have an honest conversation and B, unless we're being seen, and we say we, the politicians in this case, are being seen as somehow sympathetic and understanding how tough things are. It's almost this competition to be more sorry than the other guy or the other girl about how how bad how badly off you're doing it and how they are the solution. When we are, now, I'll say this advisedly because there's a very big range of circumstances in Australia, but we are still one of the most wealthy countries per capita in the world. If any country has a a bit of a time to say, actually, you know what, compared to almost everybody else in the world, we're 27 million out of eight odd billion people. We are in the country that has the second or third highest per capita wealth, not evenly distributed, but, but still. It's amazing how unaware we are, willingly or otherwise, of actually just how well we have it. Even even us old white blokes, you know, and, and I'm better than average because I've got a good job and a good income, but it does seem to be a lack of perspective. I, I, I was asked once on social media, if you know, if, well, I was asked, if you could describe, you know, if you give people one word, if you could do, do one thing, uh, what thing is most important? My answer was perspective. I think it's a bit of an open-eyed reality check is often missing and is taken being taken advantage of by those politicians. I think that's very true. I, but I think you also said something that's really um, important. You said, however un, unevenly distributed that may be. And I think one of the problems with the increasing per capita wealth uh, right across is that it is less and less evenly distributed. And so growing inequality creates much more um, instability. I mean, we know this. I mean, there was that one quite a few years ago, the spirit level, which talked about the more equal a society is, uh, the less violence, the less um, crime, the less disruption. It's, you know, equality, creating as much equality as possible, perfect equality is probably a pipe dream, but as much as possible, working to narrow those gaps benefits everyone in the society, absolutely everyone. But it's hard for people to see because sometimes they feel that distributing things more equally is them giving something up, them losing something. When in actual fact, yes, they might lose some funny, strange advantages they might have now. I mean, private schools, for God's sake, what a ridiculous thing that is. And, you know, if we had a fantastic public education system available to all that was really first class and, uh, you know, funded up the wazoo, well, actually, in the end, they'd benefit too because they're spending, instead of spending all that money on private schools, they could spend it on vastly more worthwhile things that might gain them much more in the long run because your kids are your kids. It's up to you. <laughs> um, and so we're doing all this stuff 
we're, we're kind of, what's it being called at the moment? It's a really good idea. Opportunity hoarding, where people are holding on to things as if, if I give up any of mine, I will lose. But actually the truth is you will gain because we'll get a more stable, less violent, less frightening, less fear-driven society where we can have much more reasonable and practical decisions about all sorts of things. And the more unequal things become, the more high risk the whole society becomes towards toppling over because a society only exists if it benefits most of the people in it. As soon as it only benefits a few, you have to start building gated communities and hiring private security. Awesome life. Well, that's the thing, right? I actually spent a small, very short amount of time in Papua New Guinea. I did the Kokoda Trail a few years back, and that's exactly that's exactly the environment. And you think you can be better off than everybody else, but you want to be careful of the society you create in the process. And, and the reverse is also true. The fr- frankly, from a self interest perspective, and you know, as an investor and, and a business person, from a self interest perspective, the, the the wealthier the society is, and the more evenly spread the resources, the greater the prosperity and opportunity for everyone in there, including those who want to run businesses or invest or whatever, because, uh, you know, I often wonder, uh, and this is a little bit political or maybe maybe just uh, ideological, but uh, I, want, I wonder where the investors, I think the customers are coming from when their workers and their businesses don't get wage rises. And you think, well, if, you, if you're expecting growth in, in spending, who's spending the money? It's probably those people over there. Now it's not, it's not a perfect scenario, but is that idea of you want to be careful what you wish for. The more you prioritize the short-term upside at the expense of the long-term upside, you really are kind of shooting yourself in the foot over. Well, hello to 2023 because I remember <laughs> I remember being in ad agencies in the 90s when banks started closing branches, when people stopped answering phones and it went through to technology and when um, companies would add to their share price by wholesale firing, you know, masses of people. And I'm going all the time, I'm going, whoa, whoa, who who do you think you're firing? You're firing your customers. It's like, get through, guys. You're meant to be crazy bright. You know, you're earning bloody big bucks, but you can't think beyond the end of your nose. You don't even know who your customers are. And worse than that, if you insult them, if you make, and now, I mean, I'm a freelancer, right? And I end up doing, but even as a freelancer or as a consumer, I end up doing all the accounting work for the person who's selling me something. What? Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, it's crazy. And, it? and this is all about them thinking that they're in business to make as much money for the shareholders as possible. We need to change the Companies Act. We need to change that um, focus because that is a false god. You're not in business to I- increase shareholder value. Yes, you are, but not at the exclusion of everything else. You are in business to employ people. You're in business to pay people wages so that they have money to spend on your services and on other people's services. You're in business to make sure that the society in which you operate remains stable and prosperous so that you can continue making a profit and give shareholders um, some value. But as soon as you start saying it's shareholder value and nothing else, you destroy all those other things, which actually in the long run diminishes shareholder value. I mean, for goodness sake, the stupidity of our society and the, and the rampant short-termism of the people in charge, it's been this way for a really long time. 
30 or 40 years. Neoliberalism encouraged it. It is my pet hate neoliberalism. I believe it a morally bereft philosophy, which says winner takes it all and losers deserve to lose. What an appalling attitude to the world. This is where we end up. We end up with Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu and Putin and Xi and, you know. Erdogan and Turkey. I mean, it's terrifying. It is. Neoliberalism was a worship, a celebration of selfishness and of trampling, of the pointy elbows, you know, pushing other people down so you can get ahead. The exact opposite of basically all the morality that I'd ever been taught or ever heard of being taught, that actually the point of being, I mean, I'm an incredibly privileged person, Scott, and I would never say otherwise. I've been born into a very educated family. You know, I was well-loved, well-brought up. I went to a fabulous public school. You know, I, I am very fortunate. But I was taught that my privilege meant my job was to spread that privilege, my obligation, because I didn't deserve that privilege. It was an accident of birth. You know, there are kids, there are girls being born in Afghanistan right now. There are babies being born in Gaza right now. They didn't deserve that fate. It's it's an accident. So uh, my luck was an accident. So my job, my obligation in response to that luck, to pay it back, is to try to spread the privilege as far as I can and to, you know, try to argue that actually we need to aim for equity and equality as much as we possibly can and give everyone, because people talk about a meritocracy, they talk about, you know, excellence. Well, if you hobble children right from the start, you say, oh, well, unlucky, born into the wrong womb, sorry about that, you're a loser. We're not talking about a meritocracy. We're talking about an oligarchy ruled by the few. And where and where the right of birth just you know, dictates your future. I, I'm a big fan. I don't know if you know the, the Thrive by Five lot being uh, headed up at the moment by the ex South African South Australian Premier. Who's Jay Weatherall. Me. Jay Weatherall. Yep, there we go. Um, but yeah, the, the work they're doing. I think there's some some great research out of the US a while ago. That, you know, the, the, the a child's experience by five. It's why early childhood education is so incredibly vital because it gives them a chance to. You know, you're right about the the problem. Or, or the, uh, the the look in the mirror thing being, you know, that's probably where the kids are going to end up. But our best chance of giving those kids, here, here, I'm stopping myself. Here's my, uh, it's not about me, it's about you. But if we can't fully fund early childhood education, I don't know what we're bothering doing anything else. If you think about our responsibility to kids that are born and have no choice, no options, no conscious ability to change their circumstances, and yet we let them, as you say, be victim to that that lottery of birth. It's a it's a strange old world. I don't. I think we do these things consciously, but when you stop and actually think about it, think, hang on, why would we not? At the very literally, if I was in charge of the budget, you probably do health first, make sure everyone's not you know getting treated for things they've got wrong with them. But after that, surely, early childhood education, just make sure kids get to five with an equal a fighting chance. Surely, is 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 the least we owe the kids of today, tomorrow. And I would argue do early childhood and education before health, because where do doctors learn how to be doctors. <laughs> yeah, fair. I think the thing is, I've argued for a really long time that, in fact, this is a really cheap thing we could do because we know, we know who those women are who get pregnant, whose kids are likely to fall through the cracks, who are likely to have those incredibly chaotic, disastrous lives. We know who those uh, women are and we know that poverty in and of itself has an effect on the developing child's brain. It affects IQ. So 
we are really putting those kids behind the eight ball. Imagine if we took those, let's say it's about 150,000 women, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, I don't know, I'm just pulling a figure out of the air, that we know are at high risk. And when they get pregnant, what we do is we absolutely work with them so that we we look after their prenatal health. If they've got addiction issues, we really work with them to help as much, much as possible. We uh, make sure the nutrition is good. Um, we make sure that they are well housed and looked after so that they've got a good pregnancy, their stress levels are lower. And then we do things like upskill their literacy and numeracy. We help them to become much more work ready. We work with them intensively. It really wouldn't cost very much. And then once we've done that with one woman, and then when the baby's born for the first year, we work really hard to make sure that that mother is well supported, that she's well happy, the baby's well fed, that, you know, all those things. We make sure they get books to read and toys to play with, the full gamut, right? And every subsequent child that woman has would benefit from that intensive work we did right up the front. But you know why we won't do it? Because a whole bunch of people, the resenters, why are they doing that? Why shouldn't we get that? Why do we do that too? No, because it's like a friend of mine who said once, lamenting this stuff, and she said, it's going to get to the point where someone's going to say, but your grandmother's got a wheelchair. My grandmother should get a wheelchair. But your grandmother can walk. walk. She should get a wheelchair. We're at that point in our society. And actually, we're not going to fix the problems unless we recognise that those people who've been neglected and, and left to rot from birth, we need to stop that. We should be a society where no member of it is left to rot but that we work and we work hard to make sure that they can escape the rot and then become contributing members of society. So early childhood uh, education is important, but actually prenatal, it's really important for the very, the most disadvantaged that we get in very early, but it's low cost and high reward. But that's why we're rejecting science. That's why we're rejecting, you know, vaccinations for COVID, why are we rejecting climate change? Because we don't want to hear the logic. We don't want to hear that some things should be done not for us but for others, which will then benefit us in the long run as being part of the whole society. It's a very nice way to put it. Hey, mate, I want to take you back uh, to those 35 years as a copywriter. I've said to people, again, it's not about me, but I'll just, by way of anecdote, I said to people, if you want to learn about applied psychology, if you really want to know how people think, watch Gruen. Uh, the, the advertising show front of by Will Anderson on, on the ABC. I have a suspicion that our best psychologists, uh, the people who understand people best, are actually the, the the practitioners in the advertising and marketing space because you get instant feedback, you see the things that seem to work and more often than not, you know, correlations and causation, but it's never, you know, never miles away. What did you learn about human nature uh, as you as you went through the advertising and marketing world? What did you what did you learn? What did you do differently? What did you find out about people? What what works? What what ticks our boxes? What presses our buttons? The first thing that I think every person working in advertising learns is that you are not important. The client is not important. They hate that. (laughs) It's the truth of it. The only person who matters Mm. is the consumer. Mm. And Therefore, you have to focus on that person. I think one of the people, reason people really like Bruin is it is one of the few shows on television which is really about them. So it's strange because everyone says, oh, people in advertising are egomaniacs, but actually the 
craft is the opposite of being an egomaniac. It's what do these people want? What do the client will say, I want to tell people this. And your job as an advertising practitioner is to say, okay, you want to tell them that. Now we need to find out who do you want to tell that? Do they want to hear what you want to tell them or do they want to hear something different? So we need to know that. And if we manage to tell them that, what do you want them to do with that information? And is that going to work for them? So you actually have to turn it around from I want to impose this on the people who buy my product to no, what do they want from you and your product and service? What it what is going to benefit them the most? So it it makes you think outside of your own little life. You know, you've got to you've got to look out. But interestingly enough, and now that I'm writing novels and stuff, the the, the skill is very similar. I mean, I think filmmakers, for example, are very good at this kind of thing as well because intuitively they kind of grasp what are the themes of this moment in time. Um, A novel that becomes a bestseller, a novel, a a, a TV series, a film that really catches the moment does so because the person behind it, the people behind it, ah, they've got their what my father used to call antenna going, picking up. And that's what a good advertising person does. You pick it up, pick it up. A lot of people think it's all about market research. Actually, actually, I still remember this little anecdote of advertising. I did a campaign for a client. I won't say who they were. You know, they gave me a great, enormous research report, huge doorstopper to read before I wrote the ads. Actually, I'd already written the ads. I didn't bother with the research report. And I told them I did, but I didn't. And um, we made the ads and they were incredibly successful. And afterwards they said to me, I just can't believe how you took all that research information <laughs> and distilled it into that campaign. I mean, it's just such a – and, I, you know, I modestly smiled and said, oh, well, you know, that's the job. But actually <laughs> the research re- report is only useful if it backs up what your antenna is telling you is going on. And you should be well enough informed about, you know, the world and people and all of that to have a fair idea even before you get the research. And if you would know this, Scott, if you get the research and you read it through and you think, none of this is ringing true, <laughs> yeah, trust that instinct. Mm-hmm. As You know, death by data is one of the things that's happened where we've given up our own humanity would never have survived this long. If we were not able to understand one another and to use our own judgment to make sensible decisions because we didn't have data until very recently. And funnily enough, as I look at the world as it was, it was in many ways a better place to live, a nicer place for some, not for all, as Louis C.K. said quite brilliantly, why would anyone want a time machine? Unless you're a white man, you wouldn't want to go par- back past 1960. True. Yes. True. Absolutely true. Yep. But nevertheless, it was a more cohesive kind of a world. Mm. And as we've gotten all this data, this is one area where information may have become overwhelming. We've lost faith in our own judgment. That means we've lost faith in our own morality and our own belief system in our own decency because we've lost that idea that we can exercise our judgment and that our judgment can be relied upon. And I think we need to really re-examine the worship of data. I'm not saying we don't need it, not saying it's not useful, but I am saying 
This idea that it tells you the truth all of the time is as false as believing anyone tells you the truth all of the time. I think that's really important, mate. I, when I'm investing, I talk about being roughly right rather than precisely wrong. Uh, and exactly, on exactly that same basis, right? Just because you can calculate something to three decimal places doesn't mean it's more likely to be right than than, than their rough guess if you if you apply some logic. That being said, Jane, I, you you paint a you paint a picture of it being a relatively simple idea, and I'm sure the idea is simple, but I'm also sure there are good and bad advertising people. Where, where's the where's the line or the combination? And there's more than just two elements, but where's the line between that that ability to be empathetic and understand people uh, versus the creative genius. If I think about some of the, and this is, I, I, I apologize for the, the horrible cliched examples, but if I think about some of the jingles of the 80s and 90s, um, you know, the Meadow Lee ad and the 2E's ad and the 4X, not the 4X, the VB jingle, it still plays, I don't know, God, 40 years later, and plenty of others besides, uh, Morteen, Louis the Fly, that kind of stuff. The stuff that's stuck in our head, I got to assume partly it's about understanding the consumer. It's also partly about that creative genius, that ability that I don't have, that other people have, you have, to say, I, I, so firstly, I think I understand. You've got to be right about that. And then secondly, I can come up with something interesting, exciting, absorbing, outstanding to to attract that person's attention. In advertising, what's that What's that ratio? What else is involved, of course, but what's that ratio between the empathetic understanding and that creative genius, the spark to be able to say, ah, I know, I feel like a twoies or Louis the Fly or, you know, good on your mum, tip top's the one. Those ads that I think everyone probably is, is already humming in their minds. Of our vintage, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, there is that. I think those two things are intimately related because I think that the more empathic and open you are to other people, the more empathic and open you are to your own ideas, emotions um, and creative self. Uh, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of our education system now, um, we close that down in children um, because we've made it all about standardised testing. And, you know, everybody's competing to be the best kid, the winning kid. Parents, you know, carry their child's um, HSC mark as a, 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 a degree of good parenting. What a load of bullshit that is. And we've fallen in love again with false gods as if the mark is the point. As Obama said, um, you can keep what, just continuously um, weighing the pig doesn't make it any fatter. <laughs> And that's what we do. We are continuously weighing our children and they're not getting any more educated. In fact, they're feeling worse about themselves. They're losing confidence in their own creativity and their own spark and their own weird, anarchic, bizarre idea. I remember when I taught ad creative at um, UWS, often some of the people who would do quite well in that course were not the super studious students who did very well in other courses, but actually the sort of P's get degrees kids who were having a lot of fun <laughs> at uni and yep. were a bit anarchic and a bit rebellious and all that kind of stuff. And they would do really interesting things and they would get a high mark. I remember one of them walking up to me once and saying, gee, thanks for the good mark. I said, you weren't it. Because creativity comes out of sedition. It comes out of the question, why does it have to be like that? Why do we have to do it like that? Just because it's always been done like that. Or the people who make the most money do it like that. Or my parents say, you do it like that. It is that subversiveness that asks that question, why does it have to be like that? How could we do it differently, which is literally the wellspring of creativity. And what I noticed was the high-achieving, middle-class, 
private school educated, Einstein dry kids who were getting 99.9 lost, had lost that. And they lost their confidence to think, I'd say, think outside the box. Think differently. They didn't even know what I was talking about. <laughs> they had been trained. Can't you so just tell us, Miss? Yeah, exactly. It's the same. Think along these structures. I mean, I hear my daughter who is an English teacher, they structure the essays. I've never structured an essay in my life. <laughs> Make a living out of writing things like that. <laughs> you kind of know a few things, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I have something to say. I, I let it come as it wishes to come. I interviewed Brian Brown about his latest new novel, The Drowning. I cannot recommend it. Brian Brown is so annoying. He's good at everything, including novel. He just said, I just have a story and I tell it. And he said, I don't go back and revise. I write a couple of hours a day and I just, the story drives me and I tell it. That's what creativity is, is giving in to that impulse. It's not going, oh, but is that the right way to write it or should I do it differently? Maybe I need to research it. Maybe I need to get somebody else to approve it. Maybe I need to ask, I don't know who, what. That's the world we're in, the what if I'm not good enough world. You're good enough. The message I give to women's groups all the time is you don't need to lose weight, you don't need to get another degree, you don't need to exercise more, you don't need to get cosmetic surgery, you don't need to do any of those things. You just have to believe that you're fine just the way you are. And you are. You're fine just the way you are. All you have to do is believe it. Now, the advertising industry that I worked in for years has a vested interest in making sure women don't feel they're fine just the way they are. I'm subverting that if I can, all on my own. <laughs> You're having a big impact. How do you how do you reflect on that time? I, I don't mean to, to, to point out too much of a finger, but given your question or your point then, I work for a business, The Motley Fool, that I'm sure every listener knows now is it does a, a reasonable job of uh, overwhelming people with emails. And uh, and that's just the that's the business model. I've got a I've got a I'm not involved in that part of the business, but I'm I work for it. So I, I have a, a responsibility one way or the other for the outcomes. The advertising industry does some wonderful things. The ability to persuade people, the ability to introduce a product, to create trial, all that kind of stuff, really super positive. The other part of, I'll say the industry, but even just general marketing in general, people in general, uh, back to politics, as you said, the politics of grievance. I mean, these things rely on evoking emotions, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. I guess every time you do a campaign, it's individual choice. But how do you reflect on the industry or the the the, the, the I call it persuasion industry, not just advertising, uh, marketing, politics. We're all we're all trying to persuade someone. You and I are talking now, trying to persuade our listeners of a, of a point of view. How do you how do you reflect on on those skills and how they're used and misused in society? Well, I think persuasion has always been part of human communication. I mean. Hmm. A parent trying to get their kid to clean their room <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. is using persuasion. Yeah. So I think to demonise it in advertising is probably silly. And it can be done with, I always wanted to write ads that I felt enhanced our world. I didn't want to write ads that I felt did the opposite. But the other kind of ad can be very effective. So you get both. I always tried to cast Diversely, I always tried to change. I mean, I won awards all over the world for a laundry detergent campaign because I changed the sex roles, the gender roles. In fact, I think I think my feminism helped me be more creative because I thought differently about the world. I saw the world from a different point of view. And so that's all creativity really is. It's, it's looking at things differently. And um, I think... Persuasion in and of itself is not bad. It's how it's used. It's the same as all persuasion uses 
really only two emotions, hope and fear. And the reason it only uses two emotions is because they're the two future-oriented emotions. Both of them are looking forwards. So if you're trying to persuade someone, you ne- you're, you're wanting them to change their behaviour. That's the point. So the great case study for that and how that works is actually drink driving. It's it's a brilliant case study and it's been a huge success in Australia. Uh, we lead the world in reducing the road toll for that. And it began with decades of don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive ads, many of which were very good. But people would go to research groups and people would say, should you drink and drive? And they go, no, no, you shouldn't drink and drive. Do you drink and drive? Yes, yes, I do drink and drive because you can change attitudes but that doesn't change behaviour. So what changed behaviour was random breath testing. So now people could say, oh, we shouldn't have wasted all that time with the anti-drink drive. No, you had to do that first. You had to change the attitudes. When you brought in random breath testing, people didn't react with, leave it to you, freedom, this is bad. Like the police state, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They accepted it because they already believed that drinking and driving was bad. They'd seen the evidence, the persuasion had been done. So once you brought in a consequence, because behaviour won't change unless it gets too uncomfortable to stay the same, and that's what random breath testing did. It made it too Before, it was more comfortable to drink and drive than not drink and drive, even if you thought it was wrong. After random breath testing, it was too uncomfortable to drink and drive for fear of humiliation. Fear of dying in a car crash, people thought, no, that happens to somebody else. Fear of being humiliated by the random breath testing at the side of the road, losing your licence and having to tell your friends why, that was the most powerful motivator and it still is. So you start to learn how to change behaviour. You've got to change the attitudes first. Then you start to bring in consequences that make it too uncomfortable to keep behaving in the same way as you used to in the past. You talk about fear and hope, and I actually had hope written down here, and I've, I've over underlined it and written a circle around as we've been talking. We started with a pretty dark view of the world and some things that are, a lot of things, that are not going as well as they could or should. I spend a lot of time on social media, probably too much, uh, as many of us probably Me do. Too. <laughs> and uh, uh, by the way, you're a great follower and I'll get you to share your details with uh, with our listeners in a minute. But I found social media is a lot of people yelling at each other about how right they are and how wrong the other person is. And that's fine if you want to feel good. And it's great if you want your fellow travelers to give you a thumbs up and approve of how direct, strong, vitriolic, whatever you are about your thing, right? You're an idiot. I'm right. There you go. Sucked in. And frankly, on social media, that's a really, really effective way to get and retain followers, right? Because all you got to do is appeal to other people's existing prejudice. Say, I'm one of you. Follow me and get more more stuff about you. And, and that's the, the echo chamber of social media. And yet, change, <laughs> making change is not about just yelling at someone how wrong they are and how right you are, because all you do is force them back into their own corner. And so as someone who is very steeped in the in the art of persuasion, spent a career doing it in different contexts, how do we how do we turn the the fear we started with the the darkness we started with into hope? What is the what is the process by which? And we're seeing, frankly, some really good social movements that have gone down in flames recently because my amateur view is they spent a lot of time agreeing with themselves and not enough time actually changing minds. How do we how do we make those changes that we seek in life? How do we get people to confront their own views, behaviors, prejudices, whatever those things are? 
and get them to focus on a, a better future? What's that look like to you? Well, it's it's an imperfect science. If it is a science at all, maybe it's an imperfect art. Um, I do think social media has been a real force for good, and that's one of the reasons that the right-wingers like Elon Musk are coming in to destroy it now because it gave voice to people who had never had unmediated access to the public conversation before. If you look at the Hash Me Too movement, that changed the world. And that is extraordinary. And that was women sharing stories of what had happened to them. And what that did was it made women go, oh, oh, so I'm not weird. This is what it is to be a woman. It's not me. Because we were all taught, oh, if someone does that to you, you've caused it in some way. And me, Hash Me Too said to him, no, you were just born a woman. And we told men, and the worst of them took this message on board, you can get away with doing that. What's to stop you? And so far too many of them decided they would get away with doing that and they can't anymore. They can't anymore and that is so good. They're trying really hard. They're weaponising um, non-disclosure agreements and circling the wagons and, you know, defamation is the new fetty. Um, but nevertheless, they, they're on notice that, you know, name and shame can happen to them. So it is a force for good and it has been a force for good. I, I, a lot of my hope actually is vested in the refusal of groups like women, people of colour, LGBTQI people to uh, step backwards. They've won a whole lot of rights and they are not letting them go. I think watching what happened in the last round of um, elections and in the midterms in the United States was really interesting because the Republicans simply are losing over abortion. Roe v. Wade has been its own goal by the Conservatives because what it has done is it has absolutely united women and their supporters against the attempt to restrict women's lives in a way that is not dissimilar from how the Taliban would, you know, not able to cross state lines if you're um, of reproductive age. I beg your pardon? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and, you know, oddly enough, the Republicans may not realise this, but people like to have sex and they don't want to have children every time they have sex. And so... I really admire the refusal of people to give up on their rights um, just because often a, a religiously motivated extremist group wants them to. So that subversiveness, that refusal to give up, that refusal to give up is really important. But my view about persuasion, and that's the thing, of course, if you go out there and do something that is antithetical to people's real lived lives, they won't go along with it. Your persuasion will fail. And that's what we're seeing happening. Um, you'll have to use real force like happens in Iran and the Taliban. You'll have to hold women and LGBTQI people at the point of a gun. And that's hard, probably won't last forever. So you have to first of all recognise that if you're going to persuade people, it has to enhance their lives in some way. There has to be a benefit and you have to keep arguing for that benefit. But I also believe that sometimes causes feel hopeless. Look, I've been an advocate for public education for 20-odd years and it's only gotten worse and not the schools themselves but the way we resource them, the way people think about them, the way people sneer at them, the, the, the appalling appalling attitude that so many people in Australia have to public education, which is one of the most bedrock parts of democracy and such a force for good if it is properly resourced and supported. And so I haven't won on that but I'm not giving up. 
Because the other thing I think that is really important is all socially progressive movements take time because they feel threatened. Why do they feel threatened? Because those movements demanding equality for previously second-class citizens, if you want to put it that way, are winning. The Teals, the Teals, that was a fantastic moment. And that gave me hope because that was a whole bunch of mostly women, not exclusively women, but mostly women, not the ones who won the seats, but the ones who started those table conversations, who got working, got the T-shirts on, went stood at stations, when it worked and did that work. And that is my view. If we want to hang on to our democracy, if we want to hang on to our decent society, which is compassionate and um, recog- and logical and recognises facts as facts and lies as lies, then we have to get in and do the work. We have to get active. We can't think anyone's going to save us. And that work includes putting on the T-shirts, handing out the flyers, maybe standing for office, getting on social media, getting a letter to the paper, making the points over and over. Because, yes, you won't persuade those who are adamantly opposed to you for whatever reason. But what people forget is they're not the only people who are listening. There are always other people listening. And those people are more open-minded and well be persuaded, even if only partially. And if you are logical and coherent and respectful as much as you can be, sometimes I just can't be, but (laughs) mostly, you know, respectful, it's amazing how many people you can win over and who hear an argument for the first time. Silence has never changed anything ever. I like it. That's a lovely way to finish off. I, I, we could do six parts of this podcast, but you haven't got the time, and uh, it probably uh, I, I probably should do it anyway. But uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Before we finish, Jane, if I can uh, bend your arm, I would like to ask you our four favourite questions that we ask of all of our guests. Uh, now, while you, when you're not writing novels, uh, what are you reading, watching, streaming, listening to? What's uh, what's what's got your attention right now? Uh, well, I've, we're in the middle of selling our house, so I had to go through all my books and cull them, and I've come oh. up old books that I haven't read for a long time. And one I've picked up to read, I think I'm going to reread a whole lot of them, is actually a biography of a woman called Vera Britton, which most of your listeners will not have heard of, but she I've was never. very... Uh, very early um, feminist in the early 19, uh, 20th century and wrote some fascinating books and had a fascinating life. Her daughter, Shirley Williams, went on to be a very powerful Labor minister in um, early Labor governments in the, the UK. So I'm reading that, I'm absolutely loving it. I love reading about powerful women and how they manage to um, subvert their circumstances in their society. What am I watching? Of course, I am watching The Crown. <laughs> I thoroughly, uh, I'm enjoying it. I okay. don't know the critics who are saying, oh, let's jump the shark and they don't like the ghost. Diana's not a ghost in it. It's the conversations that people have with someone who's died. We've all done that. We've all sat there and visualised them and talked to them. And I think that's a fair technique to use. And I just love it. I have the soul of an old gossip and I think... <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. And again, it's about women in positions of power and influence, if you think about it. All the interesting stories are. And um, what else am I doing? I love Bake Off. That's my, um, that's my chewing gum for the eyes, my real relaxation. It's food porn. You know, I'd never eat things, but I like to watch people make them. Um, I mean, I'd love to eat them, but I just put on weight straight away. 
I'm enjoying being up at the farm, hating selling my house. It's a nice torture, but anyway, it's time for us to downsize. Kids are grown and gone, so uh, anyway, that's what's going on. What's going on? Uh, I I dare say we may have covered some of this already, but my next question is: What trends are you watching in society? It can be about things we've spoken about, something entirely different, whatever you want. What what's kind of what you look at and going? Wow, that's interesting. I wonder where that's going next. I felt for a while. That we're in, and I'm going to use a highly female analogy here, that we're a society, a whole world, if you like, in transition. And transition is the point in labour where you go from the uh, widening of the cervix to 10 centimetres, the baby's head crowns, and then it enters the birth canal. And that up to that point where the uterus is expanding the cervix, it's very painful, but it's rhythmical. It has a kind of rhythm to it that, and you can get to predict it. And, you know, after a while you sort of know what's going on and you can deal with that whether you have pain relief or not, but, you know, it's rhythmical. But when it gets to transition where the baby moves out of the womb and into the birth canal, it's chaotic. It's the rhythm stops. Everything's changing. It hurts. Um, that's where women often scream for the epidural uh, often it can be where labour shuts down. If adrenaline comes into the woman's system, it cuts, shuts labour down, so that can be a problem. And it's a kind of famously difficult, dodgy period in labour, but you're actually only a few minutes away from having the baby. That's You're actually right at the point of having a new life in the world. And I wonder if that's where we're at. Are we in transition? Are we leaving the old male-dominated, white, colonial, all that, empire building, these people at the top of the hierarchy, all these people at different stages lower down, um, the old fossil fuel-dependent, fire-driven human society moving towards the birth of a much more egalitarian, truly egalitarian, not just for men but for everybody, um, less hierarchical society which becomes much more about living in harmony with the planet on which we are lucky enough to reside and a bit more with one another. I'm not going to say that it's going to be perfect and wonderful and nirvana. No, no, it'll come with its own new set of problems and difficulties and we'll try to create hierarchies and all that kind of thing because that's things. But nevertheless, is that where we're going to? A giving birth to a whole new world, and I think a better world, or at least a world with different problems, and a world that might actually survive livably for our children and grandchildren, which would be nice. And if that's where we're at, then the pain, the confusion, the chaos, the terror of transition is understandable, but we have to keep working towards the giving birth to the new, better, less hierarchical, more equal, more planet-friendly human society. And that gives me hope when I return to that metaphor that that could be what we're going through. I do worry that we're at a tipping point. We could either choose to go forward into that better place or in 2024 US presidential election may well be where we decide we could head into more chaos more misery and a ravaged planet. That's the choice we've got and we have to make it. Nobody's going to make it for us. No God is coming to save us. We need to do this. So that's that's what I'm looking at now. 
That is a very stark uh, comparison. I hope we take the right path. Uh, Jane, I normally ask at this point for advice for someone who is in a particular industry or do a particular job. I'm going to ask you instead for advice you would give to those who would be the change makers. Maybe they're the subversives and the rebels, uh, those who won't stand for the old ways. What advice would you give people who are saying, I want to make a difference? You need to have courage. You need to have courage and you need to have the courage of your convictions to use a cliche. Lots of people have convictions, but they don't have the courage to stand by them, even if it costs them. In a weird way, I was both lucky and unlucky, and it was the same thing, but it just turned out differently at different points in my life. I was brought up to think that my convictions were worth nothing unless I actually worked for them all the time, that that they that they made me me and I couldn't give them up. When I was first starting out as a young woman, that was a disadvantage. I was seen as difficult. I was seen as argumentative. I was seen as, you know, I would fight for what I thought were the right way to do the ad or the right thing or the opinion that I thought was right and so on and so forth. But I did it anyway because it was beyond my sense of self-respect not to do that. Now, the weird thing is, I remember someone saying to me, a very boss of mine, terrific creative director, lovely man in a lot of ways, but he said once, you know, Jane, you're really quite talented. If you would just give up this feminist stuff, you could go far. And I said, but there's no point in me giving up the feminist stuff. That's the only reason it would matter if I go far. Otherwise, who cares if I get ahead? How does that benefit anyone except me? And I'm already a very lucky person. So, no, I can't give up the feminist stuff. But the interesting thing is, Scott, once I left advertising, um, and I, you know, advertising is very ageist, there is a point at which they no longer watch you, I took that feminist stuff and made it a second career. And now that boss who gave me that advice and lots of the men who gave me similar advice are eking out an existence if they're lucky doing freelance work. And I am not that often at the moment on the telly, writing books, being asked to do podcasts because I stuck to my convictions. I knew what my brand was. I knew who I was. Eventually, it took me a long time, but I knew what my convictions were. And it was when I realised that my convictions were me and that that's the path I needed to follow, that I started to be much more successful. And so I would say the world tries to make you walk away from your convictions. Never do that. I love that. That's awesome. Jane, uh, we have spent a bit of time speaking about some of the good stuff and some of the bad stuff. I don't know whether you consider yourself an optimist. I have a sense that anyone who's prepared to go and fight for a better world believes that world is possible. Whether you're a business person, entrepreneur, or whatever you're doing, if you're there saying, I want to make change, I have to believe it's rooted in some degree of optimism, even if it's not called that. So my first question is, are you an optimist? And if you are, what are you optimistic about, despite everything we've just talked about? I don't know if I'm an optimist exactly, and I certainly have my pessimistic moments, but I do tend to be a fairly cheerful person and a positive person. And I think I'm a realist. I think I like to look at the world the way it is and try to find uh, an optimistic path through that, I suppose, or a better way. What am I? Well, I'm optimistic, very optimistic about women and their determination to hold on to power, 
and to change the world to make it a fairer place because as women, as the world becomes fairer for women, it becomes fairer for everyone. People are always saying to me, oh, what about, you know, this fight over here and that? And I go, yes, but half of the disabled, half of people of colour, half of Indigenous people are women. So, you know, <laughs> feminism fits into all of those because we're working to enable people of all kinds, but but of female people of all kinds, to take charge of their own destiny and their own life and make their own decisions. And I think that that's enormously important. It's also enormously important for their children, because if you have a confident mother who feels good about herself and who feels she has agency and who feels that um, she won't put up with domestic violence or gaslighting or any of that other crap that we hear all the time, and who doesn't take out her frustrations on you or invest all her dreams in you because she's thwarted herself, then we will have a better world inevitably because her children will grow up to be also more confident, more um, have a sense of their own agency and ability to move forward. So feminism changes the future for the better. It can do nothing else because it changes women's future for the better and that as they give birth and mostly still bring up children, that changes the world for the better. So my hope is always vested in the movements that say every human being is of equal value. Every human being's suffering is equally terrible and every human being needs to be given the best possible opportunity to develop their potential. And as long as I live, I'm going to work for that. And I have seen a vast improvement in that in my lifetime. If I think about 50 years ago when I was setting out, you know, leaving high school, whatever, the options that women had and the way women thought of themselves and their own life, the limited way we saw ourselves in our own life, to how it is now, <gasps> beyond my wildest imaginings, that, that I am optimistic about because I've seen it happen. That is very cool and a very powerful way to finish. Uh, Jane, before we do, how can people stay in touch with you, get more from you? How can they follow you on social media or around the place? Look, I still call it Twitter. I've tried, <laughs> all, I've tried all the others, <laughs> but I'm at Jane Caro on Twitter or X. What a ridiculous brain brand. I mean, I, people tell me Elon Musk is a genius. <laughs> not in communications, he's not. Not in technology, not in communications. Unbelievable what he's done to that. But he may have meant to, I don't know. Anyway, can't kill it and I won't go. I won't be bullied off. I won't give up that platform. I think it's very important. I'm on Facebook as well. I have a public page on Facebook if people want to follow that. And you can buy my books. There <laughs> what's the latest one? Or what's coming up next? Uh, what, the what one, can you the latest one came out last year, which is a novel um, called The Mother. And it's about um, people call it domestic noir, but it's about coercive control and uh, what happens when you discover your child is in a coercive, controlling relationship. I'm currently writing another um, crime novel, uh, which will be out, I would say, late next year. Very so cool. buy my books. <laughs> there you go. Buy Jane Caro's books. Follow her on Twitter. She's a fantastic follower. I'm not going to call it X either, mate. So at Jane Caro. Uh, Jane, it has been an absolute pleasure and a delight to speak with you. Thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Oh, thank you, Scott, for asking me to join you. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.